The Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. This is Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The hosts of Arthropod often discuss the behavior and biology of arthropods, and we are very familiar with educating about ticks, tick-borne diseases, and tick safety. Coming up, though, you will hear a firsthand account from someone who has been living with a tick-associated illness known as alpha-gal syndrome. My name is Cindy Cochran. I live on an acreage outside of Denton, Nebraska. And I think it's important for people to realize that there are lone star ticks in Nebraska and that they will bite you. And this could cause a serious allergy. That was what I experienced back in 2018 when I was bitten by a lone star tick in my front yard. Did you remove the tick or you saw the tick? Yes, I actually did not see the tick, but I had a real itchy place on my back. And I asked my husband, I said, what's going on here? I have um, this itch on my back. And so he looked and he said, oh, there's a tick. And he just reached over and pulled it off and (laughs) threw it away. (laughs) Were you able to see it before he threw it away? Like, could you tell that it was a lone star tick? No, at that point, I did not know. Well, I remember when it happened, it was in June of 2018. And about three weeks later, we were out at Branched Oak Lake at the sailing club having a 4th of July picnic. And that was when I had my first symptoms. And at first, I didn't realize what was going on. I had eaten a hamburger and a bratwurst, and about, oh, I would say three hours later, I just started itching all over my arms, just and they were red and itchy. I thought I'd gotten into something at the lake. They have a tiny little beach there, and I was out in the sand and all that, and I thought, oh, I must have gotten something there. Well, then those symptoms subsided, but then I started noticing that I had indigestion after almost every evening meal, which I thought was kind of strange. And I thought, oh, no, am I going to have to start taking Prilosec for the rest of my life? I was just kind of irritated by the whole thing. And then after about a week of this, One evening, I ate a serving of beef. I think it was like a hamburger patty or something. And at midnight, I woke up with hives from the top of my head all the way onto the bottom of my feet. I had hives all over. Well, I took some allergy medicine, and then that subsided. I don't remember exactly when it was, but before I got bitten by the tick, the Lincoln newspaper had an article about this allergy. And they explained, you know, red meat allergy, da-da-da-da-da. 
So somehow that just came into my mind after this experience that I wonder if I could possibly have this allergy. So I contacted my doctor and they said, well, we need to send you to an allergy specialist. And it took, oh gosh, almost a month or more before I could get in to see the allergy doctor. Hmm. So in the meantime, since I had read that article, I thought, well, I'm just going to avoid red meat and see if that helps. And it did. And so by the time I got in to see the doctor, I was kind of convinced that I had that allergy. He didn't believe me. He said, oh, we don't have that allergy in Nebraska, and we don't have Lone Star ticks. But anyway, I kind of insisted, and I did find out that he had, at that time, I don't know if this is still true, there was one lab in the United States back in Virginia that could do a blood test to see if I really had the allergy. And so I insisted that, can I have that test? And he finally said, yes. And so I had I had that, and they sent the sample away. It took a week for that information to come back. And <laughs> I remember the nurse called, not the doctor, the nurse, and she went, oh, you have this allergy. It's You're the highest level of reaction to this allergy. So I had to go back and see the doctor. He went, oh, yeah, you do have the allergy. And I know he had to go back into his office and read up on it online because he came back with all the same information that I had already seen on the Internet. <laughs> And he did give prescribe an EpiPen for me just to be on the safe side. I've never had to use it, but that's how I found out that, yes, I did have the alpha-gal syndrome. After I was diagnosed, he did tell me that as far as he knew, I was the only the second person in Lincoln to have this allergy. So apparently there was someone else that had it. So he wasn't totally disbelieving, but he it was so uncommon to them that that, that was one of, one of the problems. So then after doing my own research on the Internet, I was really watching my diet carefully. And at first, I didn't know whether or not I would be able to tolerate dairy products. I knew I couldn't do the red meat, but apparently different people have different levels of reaction to this. So I was hoping, since I like to drink milk and put cream in my coffee, that I would not have the problem with the dairy products. But unfortunately, I do. So I have to avoid meat products and the dairy products. So essentially, it's all mammal things. <laughs> People don't understand it because you say, well, I can't eat beef. I can't eat pork. I can't eat lamb. And they said, well, what about venison? And I'm going, no, it's a mammal. <laughs> and the, they start suggesting different kinds of meat. And I'm just going, no, nope, I can eat poultry and I can eat fish. 
that's it. <laughs> you have to be attuned to medicine because I had some soft gel vitamins. Dairy does not give me a severe reaction and the gelatin doesn't give me a severe reaction. It just gives me very uncomfortable indigestion. And that's no fun. So I avoid that stuff. But you have to look at your medications. And I also discovered that I cannot take the um, the latest shingles shot, that one called Shingrix. It has gelatin in the solution. Apparently, checking online, I put in Shingrix and it said some people have had anaphylactic shock reactions from taking that anti-shingles shot. So I have that in my medical records. There are websites where you can look up medication and check to see. I know the CDC has a website with AlphaGal, and I think there's another one where you can just, it's just talking about people that have it, and they'll put up warnings and say, well, watch out for this or do this or whatever. So Mm -hmm. there are sources, but you have to be proactive and check it out yourself. You know, being a mom, there's all these allergies for children. So you're always like, okay, you can't eat gluten. You can't have lactose. And so now there's just another potentially life-threatening allergy where it's, okay, you can't have any red meat or milk. It's something that you think about probably wherever you go and any events or any dinners that you're going to. Yes. Luckily, in most places, I can find something to eat at a restaurant, but I did end up at a high school reunion where there was nothing I could eat. They had barbecued meats and even the pork and beans. I couldn't eat that, so (laughs) I was out of luck. Have you ever been tested since then? No. Apparently, some people do get less sensitivity as time goes on. Unfortunately, I was bitten again in 2022 by another Lone Star Tick. And it's like, if you get bitten twice, it's like, forget it. (laughs) You're never going to get over your allergy. I do have to warn people, if I get invited for dinner someplace, I kind of have to remind my friends and say, now remember, I can't eat meat. And I have showed up once or twice at a dinner party and they're having some great dish and I get a piece of chicken breast. (laughs) We were on a a trip out of the country in 2021. And of course, they have wonderful bread and butter and all that kind of stuff. And one day I ate, oh, a number of rolls with butter. And that evening I had indigestion. So I could tell. What do you miss the most? Is it meat or is it the dairy product? Well, I used to love to have a little bit of cream in my coffee. And so now I have to use one of those almond milk substitutes, and it really doesn't taste the same. So that one's a big one. I can't imagine people having this allergy, say, 30, 40 years ago, because there would have been no products that you could substitute. It just 
now, in a way, I'm lucky because there's almond milk, oat milk, cashew milk. I like the extra creamy oat milk. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So that type of thing, there's a lot more of that available than there used to be. Oh, and I can get yogurt. I can get dairy-free yogurt and dairy-free sour cream, and that's great. So I use all those kind of products. Is there anything that you do to try to avoid ticks or avoid tick bites? I don't go into that particular part of my yard very often where where I've been bitten twice. I don't go in there very much. But the rest of the yard, I do garden, and I love to be outside. So I just use uh, insect repellent and check myself for ticks and stuff. So it doesn't prevent me from going. But I would not necessarily go traipsing through a big bunch of brushy area. I just kind of avoid that. You know, they're mostly really active in the spring and summer and then once you get to fall and winter then they're not biting people so much so those lone star ticks are popping up in a lot of places people are starting to to recognize them and i don't think they have to be attached for very long in order to transmit the alpha gal that's correct that's what i've read also that they think just the beginning of the bite can do it so that doesn't help very much once you get the bite you just don't know whether you're going to get that allergy or not i was listening to a podcast about a company that has been able to take the alpha gal out of pork products it could be like this alpha gal free pork would that be something you would be interested in eating That's interesting. Yes, that sounds really nice. I mean, there's nothing like a good barbecued pork sandwich. (laughs) No, I kind of miss it, but not drastically. So that's what it is. But yes, I do remember reading when I first was studying up on this, there was some kind of a chat thing going on. And one of these people who had had it for a long time and their uh, sensitivity had declined, they were commenting about how they could take an allergy pill and then actually eat a small steak. So I have tried taking an allergy pill. One of the things I really miss is good cheese. There is a plant-based cheese, but it doesn't taste as good as the real stuff. And I can tolerate really small amounts of cheese, but if I'm going to splurge and have some kind of dish with a lot of cheese, I do take an allergy pill before that, and that does keep the symptoms from, I don't get the indigestion. Yeah, You really have to be careful at restaurants, too, because you don't know... Would they fry, say, a turkey burger on the same grill as the rest of the hamburgers? When I do that at home, I have two separate grill spots, one for my husband's meat and one for mine. Anything else that you can think of that you want to share? Pay attention. Don't be thinking you can get away with this because... Unfortunately, somebody might really be allergic. And I really do think just letting people know 
those symptoms of having these hives or really bad indigestion or whatever, people need to know that because if I had not read that newspaper article, I never would have pursued anything to even think that that's what was causing my symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that one where I really broke out in hives, that was at least six hours after I ate. I still remember it. <laughs> yeah, how could you forget? Those, uh, those I, little, little things that could cause a lot of big problems, that's for sure. Yes, yes, definitely. Thank you, Cindy, so much for reaching out to me. And I really hope things progress for you in the future and that you'll be able to live with cheese again. (laughs) Well, thank you. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I'm the third host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. And we're very excited. Uh, We've lined up some tick-centric and red meat allergy-centric content for the next couple of episodes. And to kick us off on that, we have a very special guest. Very special guest. Would you mind introducing yourself to the Arthropod listeners? Hello, I'm Dr. Cosby Stone, Jr. I am an assistant professor in allergy and immunology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And I do research in alpha-gal and medication allergies. Sounds like you are exactly the person that we need to be talking to on this particular kind of topic and podcast. We're very excited to have you. Go Commodores, a big Commodore fan up here in Lexington, SEC Pride. (laughs) Oh, that's rare. It's rare. (laughs) Uh, They're black and gold. We all went to Purdue, so we we sort of commiserate with any struggling football program that also uh, wears those colors. So welcome to the show. We are excited to be talking about this topic. I think maybe as kind of a leadoff question, we're going to have heard from somebody who suffers from this uh, problem. And we're going to talk to some other folks that are going to talk about kind of the molecule itself. But you as a, as a medical professional, I was kind of wondering if we could start your story off with when exactly did you first get involved with alpha-gal diagnostics as well as helping people who are suffering from it? So I grew up in East Tennessee. And my joke is that in my hometown of Crossville, Tennessee, we study diseases that affect bad golfers. Okay. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a New England Journal of Medicine paper that focused on my hometown of Tennessee, where they helped to prove that ehrlichiosis was a tick-borne disease by studying bad golfers. So when I went to medical school in Birmingham, nobody had ever heard of alpha-gal. And when I did my residency in Connecticut, nobody had ever heard of alpha-gal, but I learned a lot about Lyme disease in Connecticut. Then I came back to Tennessee for my fellowship in 2014. And that was just a few years after uh, alpha-gal had been discovered by the group out of Virginia uh, under Dr. Tom Platts-Mills. That was, for Vanderbilt, that was the start of when we really began to recognize that alpha-gal was a problem that had been there all along and that there were a lot of patients that were affected by it um, because the testing finally became widely available. So, you know, you can't test for disease until you have a test. And in between 2009 and 2014, you know, that's when people really started working on getting specific IgE testing where you can test for the allergy antibodies that patients have in their bloodstream against alpha-gal. So once we had that, we started looking and we started finding it. What kind of symptoms do you see in them for you to say, okay, let's test them for this now that you have a test? Yeah, so early on, alpha-gal allergy was one of those things where we as the doctors knew about it um, and we would ask patients about it. And typically the people that we were asking were the ones who were breaking out in hives and they couldn't explain why or they were having severe allergic reactions and they couldn't explain why. And it's a particular type of severe allergic reaction. 
You know, it's the kind that's sort of like the movie Hitch where Will Smith, you know, just, uh, you know, breaks out in, in hives and swelling and he can't breathe. But the weird thing about it has always been that alpha-gal reactions come on in a delayed fashion. So unlike a peanut allergy where the moment it hits your mouth, you're going to start having some symptoms. For most patients who are allergic to alpha-gal, the symptoms are delayed in onset by two to four, sometimes up to six hours. So the story is kind of unusual, but it's pretty consistent that patients who are the most easy to diagnose are the ones who, you know, they ate a burger at dinner and then they woke up in the middle of the night with a severe allergic reaction. So that story is almost always alpha-gal. And I'm usually, I'm, I'm quite surprised when it isn't, you know, then we have to think about some other uncommon things. But so that particular story, we, we started picking it up and then the patient's uh, within the era of the internet. So alpha-gal is, I think, the first allergy really uh, discovered since the internet became widely available. And so the patients started telling their stories online. And within three to four years, the epidemiology of, of how the patient showed up and the level of their knowledge changed a lot. So I would say that by 2017 you know, or 18, patients would show up and they say, hey, doc, I think I got this alpha-gal thing. Uh, you know, because I, I sure do get bitten by ticks a lot and I, I can't stop breaking out in hives, you know, and my stomach's always upset. And it always seems to be after I have a burger or a steak or barbecue sandwich, you know, whatever it might be. I would say that we had initially a doctor-driven wave of diagnosis, which was pretty small, but then that doctor-driven wave of diagnosis led to a patient-driven wave of awareness. And then now we've probably hit a steady state where we diagnose patients a lot sooner than we used to. You know, they have their symptom onset and then um, they, they realize that they're allergic to alpha-gal usually within a year rather than five to 10 years. The, the interesting story, though, is that uh, the, the doctor who started our allergy program, Dr. Sam Marney at Vanderbilt, he used to tell our allergy faculty and fellows, you know, before we even had a diagnostic test for alpha-gal, he would say, listen, there's a group of patients out there who are allergic to meat and we can't prove it and we don't know why they're allergic to meat, but you just need to believe them. He said, there's just some of them. It's just that that's just what it is. Like there's nothing else that it could be. You know, they figured it out and we and we just need to we just need to support them. Sometimes our wisdom exceeds our ability to test for things. And I would say that that was a really cool scenario. And, you know, and there were a lot of doctors along the way who noticed that there were red meat allergies, but they were just sort of unusual. And everybody was like, well, OK, but they turned out to be a little bit more common than we realized once we were able to test for it. On that kind of note, I, I'm curious, you said that a couple of times this 2009 discovery of AlphaGal. Yeah. What is that history like before that? It, it sounds like you've touched a little bit yeah. on it there, but how did that happen and yeah. what did that mean, I guess? Yeah, so that's a really fascinating story in and of itself. And it's it's one of the reasons why a guy like me would be interested in AlphaGal because I mostly am interested in things in medication allergies, right? So the story of AlphaGal discovery is the story of uh, a cancer drug. And there was a cancer drug that was created called cetuximab. Cetuximab was supposed to treat head and neck cancers, really bad ones that kill people within a year. When they rolled out cetuximab in clinical trials, they did it in the Northeast and they did it in the West Coast. And those clinical trials showed that the drug was overall pretty safe and that it seemed like it worked for head and neck cancer. So, so far, so good. Uh, the drug gets approved. And then it gets rolled out all across the country and cancer centers all around the country start using it. And then there's these severe allergic reactions that start happening in North Carolina and Tennessee and Arkansas, you know, Virginia, um, you know, places where the clinical trials had not been conducted. 
And so everybody said, well, what the heck is going on? And, you know, outside of the Southeast, people were like, we don't really understand. We don't see this at all. Like, what are you guys talking about? And then in the Southeast, everybody was like, no, this is a big deal. These patients are having allergic reactions on the first dose of the medicine. So, you know, the thought was that somehow they're allergic to something that's already in the medicine. The genius of all of that was that, you know, doctors at Vanderbilt, doctors in North Carolina, doctors at Virginia, you know, they started gathering samples from their patients who had reacted to uh, cetuximab. And they sent those samples to Dr. Platts Mills at UVA. And, you know, he was a good enough allergy doctor that he started looking for the allergy antibodies without knowing exactly what they were doing, knowing that they would bind to this drug called cetuximab. And he found them. He found the allergy antibodies. And then he was able to figure out that the allergy antibodies were binding to this sugar that was sticking off of the antibody called galactose alpha-1,3 galactose. And everybody realized that that was going to be too much of a mouthful, so they shortened it to alpha-gal. A wise so, choice, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So then so then the question is, well, why are these people allergic to alpha-gal? Like, why do they already have antibodies against it? So uh, the story behind that goes that everybody started thinking about it, and somebody said, you know what? Alpha-gal is the equivalent of the ABO blood sugars in non-primate mammals. So you and I, we have sugars that define self versus not self. So, you know, type A, type O, type B. You know, if I were to give type B blood to somebody who has type O blood, they would have a really bad reaction because that's not self that, you know, they would consider that non-self. So the crazy thing is that we eat meat all the time and that meat has a non-self antigen on it you know, the alpha gal, and we tolerate it. So somehow there's a group of people that they broke tolerance, you know, to alpha gal, despite it being something that they eat all the time. So they lost their tolerance. And then when they were infused with this drug, and then you're going to ask me, the next question you're going to ask me is, well, why did the drug have alpha gal in it? And the answer was because when we were first starting to make antibody drugs to treat cancers and things like that, the best source of antibodies that we could make was from mouse cell lines. And so the antibodies had self sugars on them that came from mice. And alpha gal is a sugar that, you know, that a mouse cell would attach to an antibody that it makes to say, hey, this is my antibody. We've gotten over that problem in drug in drug development now because we use fully human antibodies. You know, but when we were first starting to make drugs that were antibodies, you know, we were making them with mouse cell lines that were attaching alpha gal to them. So Alpha-gal was discovered as this, this sugar that was attached to cetuximab, you know, that was because it was from a mouse cell line and people were allergic to it. So then the, the next stroke of brilliance, you know, that the group at Virginia had was that they said to themselves, well, hang on a minute. You know, we've been studying these patients who have this weird red meat allergy. Do you, do we think that maybe they're allergic to this sugar too? And so then they started looking and lo and behold, they found that most of the patients who have red meat allergy turn out to be allergic to alpha-gal, to the same sugar. So the discovery of the alpha-gal allergen on cetuximab was a New England Journal of Medicine paper, big deal. Um, and then the discovery that it was a red meat allergy was, you know, a, a further big deal. Like, it's just sort of this weird story that just kept getting weirder. And then the fact that I'm talking to you guys uh, <laughs> and not other people uh, is, a, is, is yet the third step in how weird the story became. I remember some of this coming out, like I was starting grad school around this time, and I remember hearing the kind of inklings of this. And the thing I distinctly remember is people saying, you know, this is really like a Tennessee, Virginia, that Arkansas yeah. type area. I used to area. joke that it was interstate 40 disease. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So what is the epidemiology of it now? Because it seems like it's pretty widespread in the southeastern United States. It's a global problem. How did that occur? Like what happened to make it 
not the interstate 40 disease and to make it this kind of global phenomenon? Yeah, the the third wild and wacky thing that just makes AlphaGal the most science fiction story that came true ever is that they looked at a map of all the patients who reported AlphaGal allergy, you know, over time. And everybody was just sort of like, why is it only restricted to this geographic area in the Southeast United States? You know, reports started coming in from around the world, you know, when people started testing their red meat allergy patients and finding that they're their allergy antibodies, that they were alpha-gal antibodies too. But in the United States, everybody's like, well, why, you know, why is there a boundary? You know, why, why is it that people in Maine don't have it? Why is it that people in California don't have it? So they started looking for other maps that overlapped the distribution of, of alpha-gal, right? And then the map that overlapped it the best was the distribution of the Lone Star Tick. So they went back and they started asking patients and there was just a disproportionate number of patients who reported that they were fine until they had a tick bite and then they started becoming allergic to alpha-gal. That particular piece of epidemiology is just fascinating to me that like, you know, you just take one map and you overlay another map on top and then that gives you the clue that you need to figure out what the trigger is right. that made you that made you go from tolerating the red meat that you ate every, you know, for your whole life to not tolerating it. Even even when I was in fellowship, we weren't sure that the ticks were causing it, but we thought they probably were. So 2015, we started having, you know, pretty good evidence that there were, that the ticks were causing it. And then a couple of years later, Dr. Commons, who was uh, one of Dr. Uh, Platzmill's proteges during the, all the discovery of alpha-gal, he was able to show that the ticks themselves actually do have the alpha-gal sugar inside of their bodies. You know, it's in their saliva, it's in their gut. So when they bite you, they're exposing you to it. And they're exposing the part of your immune system that is, I would say, the least tolerant of things in your whole body, and it's your skin's immune system. So the immune system in your skin is just really prone to making allergies. It is not tolerant of things. And that's because of a different parasite, which is worms. The, The allergy immune system is designed to repel the invasion of hookworms that come through our skin. So, you know, the, the, the antibodies, they detonate uh, mast cells that release histamine to make you itchy. So you scratch that worm as it's trying to creep through your skin mm-hmm. and hopefully you kill it or it gets to your lungs. And then, you know, the, the bronchospasm that you get, you know, makes you cough it up or, you know, you get diarrhea or you throw up, you know, to get rid of that worm. You know, but if it's a peanut or if it's alpha gal, you know, that you become sensitized to, then all of those cells detonate everywhere simultaneously and you have that severe allergic reaction. So alpha-gal is different than peanut in that regard, in that you get these delayed onset of symptoms. And again, an immune system that was designed to re- uh, for allergies that was designed to repel parasites becomes sort of your detriment when it's directed against an allergen. So did you hear about this and then decide you needed to study this? Or were you already into allergy and you kind of got thrown into this? This was like your, I want to be part of this. So here's what happened. I'm a really practical guy. I have to find my motivation to want to study something. And the patients became my motivation to study alpha-gal. And the fact that they were here and the fact that they were so unusual, like, and the fact that nobody really knew what to do for them. And I'll tell you a couple of patients in particular that really just sort of inspired me. One, one was a lady who was just, you know, I still think of her as being probably one of the most allergic to alpha-gal patients that I can think of. And every time I ever asked her about it, she said, oh, you know, I can't go out of my back door without getting bit by a daggone tick. And she was just so exquisitely allergic to alpha-gal. I, I think of there being a sort of a pyramid of reactivity in alpha-gal, right? You have 100 patients who are allergic to alpha-gal. Of those 100, about 10 will react not only to meat, but also to dairy. 
out of that 100, about one will react to gelatin in addition to dairy and meat. So, you know, the more allergic to alpha-gal you get, the more tick bites you get, then you will become more likely to react to things that just have really trace amounts of alpha-gal in it. She was one of those patients, right? So she's so exquisitely allergic to alpha-gal that she reacts even to trace amounts of alpha-gal in gelatin, which meant that the day that she went to get her booster vaccine to shingles, that she had a severe allergic reaction to that. And so my interest in alpha-gal was born out of an adverse drug reaction, you know, where she had a, a, an anaphylactic episode to her shingles vaccine. And it was the old version of the shingles vaccine. You know, so we published that. We, and then we were the first ones to tie, you know, alpha-gal to these rare, exceedingly one in a million type, you know, events where somebody has an allergic reaction to their shingles vaccine. Um, so that was pretty neat. You know, but then, so that got me interested in, well, what, what other medication ingredients are safe for patients with alpha-gal to take and, and which ones, you know, might there be, you know, uh, a little bit of alpha-gal allergen riding along that this exquisitely allergic person might have a problem with. And so we started thinking about it and gelatin seems to be the main one, you know, but again, alpha-gal was discovered because it was a medication allergy. You know, it was riding on an, uh, on a monoclonal antibody that we were using for cancer treatment. There is a concern, you know, like, okay, well, we get heparin that, you know, to treat your clot that you have, we, we get this drug called heparin. Heparin comes from pig pancreases. Are patients with alpha-gal allergic to heparin? And then again, the answer is, you know, rarely. Yeah, this one in a hundred patient with alpha-gal can react to heparin when we try to treat their clot. So those are the kinds of things that I've studied and have made the most impact on is trying to figure out which medications are or are not safe for patients with alpha-gal. So my interest was born from my patients. Anytime my patient came and asked me a question and I said, I don't know the answer to that. The second thing that I said was, but I am gonna to try to help you figure out whether it's safe for you. And then we'll use that knowledge to figure out whether it's safe for our other patients too. So again, my research in alpha-gal has always been practical and it's always been driven by what my patients tell me that they need. If they tell me that they need something, I try to figure out whether we can do it or not. And anytime that we figure out something that's useful, I write it down because other people are going to need to know it at some point too. That's sort of my, my transactional relationship with alpha-gal is to, is I'm going to do any alpha-gal research that I need to do as long as it helps my patients. That's really awesome. Uh, I, I think that's a cool story. I've got, um, and, and maybe it's just because I'm not a doctor and my medical knowledge isn't that deep, but a couple of things that you've mentioned have struck me and I wonder how weird and unique is this? you know, thinking back about how the cancer drug was tested, like if they would have just tested that in the Southeast and got a lot of allergic reactions to it, maybe they wouldn't have continued testing it because they just assume like people are allergic to it or causes reactions. It's a bad drug. Let's dump it. Then, you know, you finding these one in a hundred patients that react to vaccines are there lessons here that we could take and apply to other rare things like other weird reactions that people are having or like, is there some broader lesson that we can take from this that isn't just yeah. alpha-gal or is it like alpha-gal is <clears throat> unique and it's something weird. These kind of things aren't really applicable to other things. Does that question make sense? I'm not sure. No, if I'm I like that question a lot because that's the kind of stuff that I think about a lot. So when you become the person who likes to take care of weird patients who are having weird problems, like I have, uh, which it gives me a great joy, but it also gives me lots of head scratching. What I have learned is that the principles of basic epidemiology apply to every patient who has a weird problem. You know, so when somebody walks in the door and they say to me, for example, 
I had anaphylaxis to my colonoscopy preparation. You know, like I, I tried to get, you know, my bowels cleaned out for my colonoscopy and I had a severe allergic reaction. You know, so that happened several years ago. Well, we demonstrated that the person was indeed allergic to this polyethylene glycol. And then we said, okay, well, let's try to figure out if there are other people who are allergic to polyethylene glycol. So we used databases, you know, and found that indeed there were other people who, you know, were allergic to polyethylene glycol who were sort of hiding under the radar. And then we published that. And so that turned out to be something that was valuable. You know, it's probably, again, you know, more alpha-gal in, in regional areas could be up to 1% of the population is, is affected symptomatically, right? Polyethylene glycol allergy is a one in a million. But the principles apply that if you find one person, you might find another. And then whatever you learn from one person is going to help the second person. I always feel bad for the first person that we just, that we find who has something because I, you know, we end up doing things that make sense. And then we do end up doing things that don't make sense. The implied question in your, you know, about like drug regulation and, you know, just saying, oh, well, this drug is a bad drug is, is really important. And I, you know, let's say that cetuximab had been tested in the Southeast, you know, during the clinical trials. I don't think that it would have ever gotten approved. And it's not that it's a bad drug. It's just that, as you say, the adverse event rate would have been so high that they would have thought it was a bad drug, you know, but it's really only a bad drug for patients with alpha-gal allergy, right? So if you don't know the underlying mechanism for an adverse drug reaction, you don't know whether it really is a bad drug or a good drug. And so the, the whole point of medication allergy research to me is let's make things that seem unpredictable, predictable. Because if it's predictable, you can avoid it. You know, like if you can, if you can, you know, send a blood test and say, oh, this person has alpha-gal allergy sensitization, we should not give them cetuximab or we should give them cetuximab in a safe way, that makes it safe. You know, or if you can say, oh, this person had an allergic reaction to, you know, gelatin in their shingles vaccine and it was because of alpha-gal, well, the next version of shingles vaccine that came out, you know what happened? They didn't use gelatin. So now we have a gelatin-free shingles vaccine. You know, every time we identify a problem and we can figure out the exact root of the problem, we have an opportunity to make drugs and vaccines safer for people. So that's what's happened with AlphaGal is that vaccines have gotten safer over time because they look at it and they go, okay, well, there's a lot of people that are affected by AlphaGal. Let's use different ingredients so that they don't get affected by that. So there's a there's a, a an iterative learning about this. But truthfully, if you don't get to the root of the problem, if you just say, if you just say to yourself, oh, this drug causes allergic reactions and you don't answer the question of why did this drug cause allergic reactions, then you probably haven't done enough to figure out whether the drug is a good drug or a bad drug. That's my thinking on that. I love, I love that question because that really is at the, at the philosophy of, of what I try to do with my practice and my research. You mentioned 1% of people or up to 1% of people in the Southeast may be sensitive to alpha-gal. I guess compared to other sensitivities in other diseases, like is that high, low? Can you put that 1% into perspective? So if you're talking about, you know, people who are allergic to peanut, that's about one to 2% of the population. The issue being that the ticks are a very common exposure, right? You know, in the Southeast, it's just so easy to get bitten by a Lone Star tick. They're like, they're waiting to ambush you, you know, the moment you walk under that evergreen tree where the deer was sleeping the last time. Now I read recently that they use static electricity to fly through the air like little, you know, heat-seeking blood bats. They're just waiting to get you. The other thing about alpha-gal that's kind of interesting is that people don't all react the same. 
you can get sensitized to it. But amongst the population, 30% of the patients who get allergic to alpha-gal, they will have uh, anaphylactic reactions. 50% will just break out in hives and swelling and have stomach symptoms. You know, up to 20% just have stomach symptoms. So that sort of throws a lot of our allergy paradigm on its head because we, we've been saying for a long time that you don't really have just stomach symptoms from allergies. That's a, you know, that's a symptom of sensitivity, you know, or intolerance. Alpha-gal makes me angry in that, in that it breaks all the rules. It makes me excited in that it breaks all the rules because I think there's an opportunity to learn from it as to what the rules actually were all along. And we just were assuming they were one way, but maybe they were a little bit different than what we thought. But in general, there's a lot of things that are intolerances that the immune system has nothing to do with. You know, you eat a food and it, for you, it damages the lining of your gut or, you know, your microbiome doesn't like it. And so you start making a bunch of gas and you have diarrhea or, you know, you've got too much stomach acid and you eat that acidic food. And then like the acid just does a number on you when you add acid upon acid. There's a lot of reasons why people have, you know, intolerances to foods that are not allergy. You know, the fact that alpha-gal, you know, as an allergy can sometimes masquerade as symptoms that we would have classically called an intolerance is, is also itself somewhat intolerable, but we're going to work on resolving that. But that's a, that's a paper that we just published recently, in addition to other people, is that we were some of the first ones to notice that children who have alpha-gal will often show up at the pediatric GI clinic with uh, unexplained throwing up and diarrhea. Um, they don't necessarily have hives. They don't necessarily have, you know, anaphylactic shock. And then if you take them off of the, you know, the meat, you know, then they get better. And then you go, okay, well, how long is this going to last? I don't know. Don't get any more tick bites. It might go away. That's what we sort of are hoping. Um, but there's a lot we could do to improve on that. That's obviously not a perfect diagnosis. Let's talk about that diagnostic process then, this this yeah. uh, method of how this would occur. So if somebody were to come to your clinic and present these symptoms, like what, what would be the sequence of events that would occur? So the first thing that I'll tell you is that there's a lot of people who make the mistake of getting tested when they don't have any symptoms. Don't do that. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, don't do that. You know, even if somebody's encouraging you to get, you know, a test, if you don't have symptoms, don't get the test. Because what's going to happen in Tennessee and in other states you know, is that there are enough people who've been sensitized to alpha-gal that you're going to get a positive blood test result, you know, but you won't have any symptoms. And then you're going to worry that you're allergic, but you won't have any symptoms. And you're going to worry about whether you need to avoid, uh, you know, meat, but you don't have any symptoms. So then you're going to have to come to me where I tell you, hey, you don't have any symptoms. You don't need to avoid it. You, you wasted your money on the test. If you test everybody in Tennessee, if you grab a, 100 people and you test them randomly, you know, 20 of them are going to have a positive blood test to alpha-gal. People have been bitten by the ticks and they've been sensitized, but they don't have any symptoms. So the first rule of allergy testing is if you don't have symptoms, don't get the test. The second rule of allergy testing is if you don't have the right symptoms, don't get the test. You know, if you don't have symptoms that match the symptoms of alpha-gal, don't get tested for alpha-gal. Because again, you know, there's a lot of people who have symptoms, but they aren't alpha-gal symptoms. And then they get tested and they're one of the, you know, one in five that are sensitized. They're going to think that their symptoms are related to alpha-gal. They're going to take themselves off of the food without having ever seen me. And those patients are going to get no benefit from having gone on a red meat free diet for six or seven months, you know, until they finally come see me and say, hey, I don't know, am I actually allergic to alpha-gal? And then I say, I don't think you are. So if you don't have the right symptoms, don't get tested. So the best way to do this 
is to, you know, if you are worried that you have alpha-gal, is to go talk to an allergy doctor who's got experience with it and tell them what your symptoms are. And then they will tell you, hey, I think there is utility in sending the test for you based on your symptoms. And then if it comes back positive, you still have to worry a little bit that you are just sensitized, but you don't have any symptoms. So there's two ways to try to, 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 to get over that particular hump. One is that you first, you know, cut it out of your diet for a while and you see how things go. If your symptoms go away and you are just all of a sudden miraculously better, that's a really, really, really good sign that alpha-gal could be contributing to your symptoms, but it's not perfect. Now, some people, the symptoms that they had were pretty dangerous, like they were having anaphylactic reactions. Those people, we're not going to mess with them. We're just going to assume that we've got it right until, you know, we're proven otherwise because they keep having allergic reactions despite avoiding alpha-gal, in which case we go back to the drawing board and we keep working on it. But for people who have lesser symptoms, like maybe it's just hives and maybe it's just GI symptoms, you know, they really want to confirm that they are allergic to alpha-gal. The confirmatory test would be to eat some and then hang out at the allergy doctor's office where it's a safe place and where we can monitor you, right? That's called a food challenge. If, it, if your symptoms really weren't that bad to begin with and you're about to embark on a diet where you're not going to get as much nutrition, it's probably a good idea to consider doing that because do you really want to just cut all, the, all of your favorite foods out of your diet if your symptoms you know, might or might not be explained by it? If it's really clear that your symptoms are explained by the test that we did, then great. You know, but if it's not clear, then you probably want to consider doing the food challenge where we where you eat it and then you sit around in our office until we see whether the symptoms come or whether they don't. Um, and I think that I think of that as being the gold standard in testing. You know, in Europe, they're a little bit more merciless than we are. They they challenge people just to, to confirm the diagnosis, like they won't let you have a diagnosis until you've been challenged. I tend to think of it sequentially, which is that like the, the level of evidence goes higher and higher with each step that you achieve, which is symptoms followed by positive tests, followed by a positive challenge is the highest level of evidence that we've got at the moment. You know, now not everybody goes through every every level of the testing um, in order to confirm their diagnosis. Is the test like a blood test? There are skin tests that we can do that are sometimes helpful. I won't deny that they they, they pick up some patients. Like if you do a skin test with beef, and pork, you know, sometimes those will pick up the patients, but sometimes they don't. Uh, the, the most sensitive test seems to be the blood test, where we measure to see whether a patient has those allergy antibodies against alpha-gal. You know, now with that being the most sensitive test, that's the reason why it picks up a lot of people. If you just randomly tested everybody, it picks up a lot of people who aren't actually allergic, then they don't have any symptoms. So is it just, is it a number? And then like a certain yeah, number so a is cutoff. the threshold. Yeah, it's a, it's a cutoff on the amount of allergy antibodies that you have in your blood at the time that we do the test. Um, that sort of helps us say, hey, it looks like it could be that you have it or you don't. And there's just a lot of people who run around with a really low level of alpha-gal antibodies in their blood and they just don't have any symptoms. So the lower you are, the more likely it is that it's a false positive test. The higher you are, the less likely. You know, but there are still some people who run around and you know, they've got an alpha-gal that allergy antibody that's higher than the, the limits of the, the, the test will allow us to, to do, you know, to quantify. And, you know, they just have some stomach symptoms, you know, so alpha-gal is a, is a freaking weird allergy that doesn't have any uh, well-established rules. We actually applied for a grant that I'd love to get where we could try to figure out all these really weird things about it, you know, but you never know whether you're going to get a grant. So just got to keep writing yeah. more grants. 
<laughs> What's the highest level that you've seen? Well, our our assay, you know, it only goes up to like a uh, hundred kilo units per mL, you know, or international units per mL. And so I've seen people be at that upper limit, and I just think to myself, you're probably not a hundred, you're probably a thousand, you know. But I don't have any way to, yeah. you know, above a hundred, you know, there's no point. It doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any point in quantifying it above a hundred. We do meet people who are just like, you know, they're 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 somewhere above the top of the assay, and we just don't know exactly where they are anymore. And so, are you saying that sometimes they don't? have the most severe symptoms, even though yeah, despite having the most, so that's the wow. weird thing is that despite having the most antibodies, sometimes they don't have the most severe symptoms. Wow. Alpha-gal is the muddiest allergy, which is probably why I pay the most attention to it because it just, all the rules are just sort of optional and it just bothers me that they're kind of optional. You know, over time, I'd like for them to become less optional. I'd like to have clearer boundaries but I've always been accused of not knowing where the where the box is. And so the fact that alpha-gal is outside of the box makes me more comfortable because it doesn't know where it is either. It doesn't know where the box is. It just kind of like, it just kind of, it's just this smear of an allergy syndrome. So that's the other thing about alpha-gal is that we now call it an allergy syndrome because there are some things that are clearly allergy about it. And then there are some things about it that are just sort of like the weird tale of, you know, I don't know what this is, but it's something. We three, uh, we do a lot of education on ticks and all, all of the things associated with ticks. And I know that when I'm on the road talking to folks about ticks, the first thing, I, it used to be a Lyme disease, and now it is almost always alpha-gal. And in the crowd, there's almost always one or two people that they report that they've either had the test and confirmed it, or they, they're about to get the test, and they share with me this kind of litany of symptoms. And they always ask me, what's going to happen to them? Like, what is the future? What does the future hold for them? Yeah. And I have to say that I'm just a humble country entomologist and I don't really answer medical questions like that. So what would be the prognosis for some of these folks? Like, is this something that only time will tell for them or they got to swap out their blood for somebody else's? Like, what is it that we're going to be able to yeah. offer them? No. So that's, that's part of the grant that we proposed is how long does this last? You know, once people have got it, you know, are they stuck that way? You know, anecdotally, I'll tell you that I've met patients who grow out of it, right? And most of the patients that I have seem to become less allergic over time. There's some really good research done by my friend Jeff Wilson at, at the University of Virginia showing that if you don't get tick bites in between one doctor's visit and the next, if you don't get tick bites, you know, your alpha-gal allergy antibodies tend to go down, 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 down. But if you get another tick bite, bloop, you know, you get resensitized and they might you know, go back up again, and then you start the clock all over. So the main correlate of growing out of an alpha-gal allergy that we know of seems to be, you know, not getting any more tick bites. The interesting thing about alpha-gal that I, that we still have to resolve is, you know, for the patients who have the low-level symptoms and they say to themselves, I still want to eat some, you know, my symptoms are mild. And if I just take enough antihistamines, you know, like I'm okay. So you know, for those patients, you know, the evidence does not show that they grow out of their of their allergy faster or slower than someone else if they if they keep eating the food. The unresolved questions in alpha-gal as far as avoiding versus not avoiding the food are, is there a cardiovascular risk to alpha-gal allergy? Patients are asking about this because, again, my friend Jeff Wilson at UVA, you know, opened a can of worms. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll tease him if he ever hears this, you know, but and what he found was that because alpha-gal is a sugar, it rides on lipids and those lipids circulate through your bloodstream, you know, in the form of cholesterol. 
And so one of the thoughts as to why alpha-gal has a delayed onset is that it has to be packaged onto cholesterol molecules by your liver and then released into your bloodstream before you have symptoms. You know, that it's not absorbed directly into your bloodstream, that it gets absorbed into your lymph and then your lymph has to take it to your liver. And, and so the reason that people don't have symptoms until like two to four hours later might be that it's that it's just not even being seen by the immune system until it gets released as cholesterol, you know, uh, riding along on cholesterol. That's a hypothesis, but it has a, it's a hypothesis with some evidence. You know, so what he found is that patients with alpha-gal, that their cholesterol plaques might be less stable compared to people who have, you know, cholesterol uh, problems, but they don't have alpha-gal. So alpha-gal patients are worried about, you know, their cholesterol and they're worried about whether they're going to have cardiovascular events like strokes and heart attacks. Is their sensitization to alpha-gal one of the reasons why they are at risk for those events? So that's an unanswered question. But in terms of what you would do about it, you don't do anything differently currently than what you would do if you just knew that you had high cholesterol, right? We don't know that alpha-gal is an independent risk factor for people unless they've already got bad cholesterol. So if you've got bad cholesterol, do everything you can as far as lowering your cholesterol when you have alpha-gal. And then, you know, then the consideration is, well, you know, being off of red meat helps your cholesterol. So maybe you're getting two birds with one stone. You know, if I can make a stone pun with my name being stone. <laughs> I, I tend to, I tend to, you know, when I counsel patients, you know, like when they ask me about cardiovascular risks of alpha-gal, I tend to say, well, listen, you know, red meat avoidance lowers your cholesterol and it also helps you not have symptoms. So maybe you've got two reasons that, you know, there's a benefit there. I don't know for sure that you're an increased risk for cardiovascular events, but there's at least some evidence that says you might be. So let's just, you know, maybe we're going to be a little bit more cautious about reintroducing it into your diet when the time comes. What I'm hearing is that this is all a conspiracy by big chicken, either big chicken industry or uh, by cardiovascular industry to, to try and get people off of red meat. It is. I mean, and, you know, and um, I've said that before that this is just a conspiracy theory of a disease that came true. And I, I don't know. I don't know who I don't know who created it, but, you know, it clearly was not the big red meat, you know, like the, the, the pork producers of the world and. And the, you know, the beef uh, industry, they're looking at this going, this is an existential threat to my business, you know, and then the chicken and fish producers are like, we've now got a captive audience, they can never get away, <laughs> you know, but, you know, along those lines, one of the most interesting things that's happened recently is they also noticed that the alpha-gal allergen is one of the reasons why you get rapid rejection of transplanted organs that come from pigs. You know, so if you, if you take a valve from a pig, it usually lasts for several years in a patient, you know, but if you try to put a kidney from a pig into a person, you know, who has kidney failure, uh, that organ will turn black and die within seconds. And so that's called hyperacute rejection, you know, and similarly, it sure would be nice if we could transplant organs from pigs into people, uh, hypothetically, you know, who have organ failure, because there's just not enough organs to go around, right? You know, you can't take a heart out of a person and give it to another person the way you can a kidney, but it, it sure would be nice if we could take organs from, you know, from some other source, you know, to help people with organ failure, right? There's some interesting data that if you get rid of the alpha-gal allergen in the animal, that it helps those organs to survive longer. And there's, a, there's even a case recently of a gentleman who he kind of had run out of options. He'd already had a couple of heart transplants. So they tried an alpha-gal knockout heart, you know, from a pig. And, you know, he lived with it for several months. The problems were, you know, that the some of the viruses that 
live in a pig heart eventually overwhelmed his immune system. So it may not ever be a good approach, but it, it's an interesting one. And it's an interesting, not, it's an interesting mechanistic gain to recognize that one of the reasons that we can't cross the species gap is alpha-gal allergen. Not to get too far in the weeds with that, but how are they eliminating alpha-gal from pig organs? Is it, you said it's a knockout. So is it RNAi? So this is a company that did that. I try not to be biased. I, you know, they're the first ones to do it. So I'll talk about it. And I don't, I don't get any royalties from anybody. So let's just make that clear. Uh, I just think it's interesting that they were able to do it. What they did is they used CRISPR technology to knock out the alpha-gal gene so that the pigs that they have developed do not express alpha-gal in any form or fashion. So they are alpha-gal knockout pigs. They're, they're normal pigs otherwise, and they got FDA approval to be eaten. And in fact, some of my alpha-gal allergic patients have eaten bacon from these pigs, and they did just fine. They didn't have any symptoms. The, the principle, again, seems to hold true that, you know, like if you're, if you're even more conspiracy-minded than I am, Sometimes you might be prone to question, well, is this alpha-gal really a real thing? Like, because this, it's just so weird that like, is it even re a real thing? But the fact that you can eat pork from a pig that has alpha-gal knockout and not have a reaction, whereas if you ate pork that was not from an alpha-gal knockout, you would have a reaction. I mean, it seems to be like, okay, we did find a true allergy, you know, like, so I think it's interesting from a, from the standpoint of like what it tells us about the allergy, but I will leave it to other people to decide the commercial viability of such a product, you know, and, and what we might actually use it for. I guess I was wondering if the variability in alpha-gal syndromes is related to tick bite frequency. Like if you get bitten more often, if that yeah. produces worse alpha-gal symptoms, but you mentioned like some people have these sky high test results that have, you know, minimal kind of symptoms. So maybe that's not the case. The fact that you add, that you asked this question makes me hopeful that we'll get funded on the grant that we submitted because the, the goal is to try to answer these questions of like, why is there so much variability amongst our patients? You know, why do some people eat the same thing and they have this set of symptoms and other people eat the same thing and they and they have this other set of symptoms? It, there's, there's no clear explanation why people have so much variability. Tick bites clearly has something to do with it. You know, like I've watched patients who went from mild to severe by getting more tick bites. And I know, I know at least a couple of people, you know, including, you know, some patients from Kentucky, right. You know, where they, uh, a guy that I can think of in particular, he, he had alpha gal for six years, did a great job, didn't get any more tick bites. It seemed like it went away. He was able to eat meat for two years. His blood tests were negative for a couple of years. Um, and then he got a tick bite and it came roaring back again, you know, so tick bites clearly march you further along the spectrum of severity, you know, but there are some people that they they get tick bites all the time and they never get any more severe than stomach symptoms. So what the heck is going on? Like, why are they, why are they resistant, you know, to the more severe symptoms? And I think that, you know, understanding that would actually teach us a lot about like, why do some people have severe allergic reactions and why do other people don't, you know, why do some people tolerate things and other people don't? I, I just want to know those sorts of things because it just, you know, alpha-gal is, is such a smear that I think that it, it actually it lets us get closer to the border zone of, you know, what's a reaction and what's not, you know, it lets us get, you know, it's a model that lets us figure out, you know, like, well, what, what is it about a person that makes them more likely to have, you know, symptoms at all? So I, I you know, I would love to have grants that look at those particular questions because I, I just have to think that maybe there's, there's predispositions to having allergic reactions 
that allow for people to have severe symptoms and that alpha-gal in a person like that results in severe symptoms, whereas alpha-gal in a person who's not predisposed to allergic reactions, you know, like maybe their symptoms just aren't as bad. And then there's some people it's like, it doesn't matter how many ticks I get bitten by, I'm just resistant to having allergic reactions. You know, thank you very much. I'm just not going to do it. So I, I I have to think that there are factors like that that may be hidden in people's genetics that, you know, that would be really interesting to uncover if we get funding to do that. Have you found that it has anything to do with the type of meat they're eating? Like if they're like, I just eat rabbit. It does. It does. It, it has, it has it? a lot of things to do with the type. So there's some patients that swear, you know, and again, these are things that we can't, uh, that we haven't studied well enough to know. I, I'm of the opinion that you should trust what your patients tell you because they don't have any incentive to lie about their own health in most cases, you know, but some patients will swear to me. They'll say, listen, doc, I can eat bacon. I cannot eat beef. If I have beef, I will die. If I eat bacon, I'm fine. And they have the same alpha-gal blood test pattern as somebody who can't eat bacon. And I'm just left scratching my head going, I don't know why that's the case. But I believe you because you did it yesterday and you did it this morning and nothing happened. I can't explain why some people react to one meat versus another. I can explain why some people react to one version of a meat, you know, maybe and not another. In that there are cuts of meat that you can eat that have more alpha-gal and there are cuts of meat that you can eat that have less alpha-gal. So if you, like the Germans, are very interested in your organ meats that have been turned into sausages you know, you will have the highest risk for alpha-gal allergic reactions because there's a lot of alpha-gal in the blood vessels and the tubules of kidney meat. If you're somebody who really only eats lean beef, you know, some of my patients swear to me that they, being on the border zone of alpha-gal symptoms, that they can eat lean meat that doesn't have a lot of alpha-gal in it, whereas if they eat uh, a really fatty, you know, steak, that they will have symptoms. And similarly, the, you know, the 10% that do have symptoms with dairy, when they start growing out of their dairy allergy, they will have reactions to ice cream, which has lots of fat in it, and presumably maybe more alpha-gal as a result, but they will be okay with skim milk and they'll be okay with hard cheeses like Parmesan, which, you know, does not have very much fat in it. So, you know, the, the fat spectrum explains some, react, some of the reactivity, but then there's individual patient variability that is just baffling to me. The other thing that exists out there is uh, uh, there are meats that are close to red meat, according to my patients, that make them feel as though they've eaten a steak. Uh, so emu is very popular among alpha-gal patients. Emus are terrifying to me. You know, uh, I grew up on a farm where the, a farmer nearby had emus. And to me, they look like the closest thing to a dinosaur and they can eviscerate you with a kick. So I'm, I'm somewhat terrified of them, but I'm, I'm all about, I'm all in favor of eating them, um, you know, because... Uh, but my patients say that it tastes pretty good. Well, that's good to know. The woman that I interviewed who has alpha-gal will be interested to hear that because she yeah. said she'd be interested in eating the like the alpha-gal-free meat. Yeah. But the reason I asked about the different kinds of meat, because you were talking about the kind of the dinner, waking up in the middle of the night. Yeah. But I was thinking of breakfast meats and how, you know, if yeah. they're delayed reaction, it would be at, at lunchtime during work or something. Yeah. And that can confuse people. Yeah. You know, because they're like, oh, I just ate something for lunch and I reacted to that. But no, you actually reacted to breakfast. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's a sneaky one as well. Yeah. No, you're you're right on the money. Alpha-gal is a, it, it can be a tough diagnosis for some people. So I, my my colleague, Dr. Kawash, he, um, he had a mystery case that got published in the New York Times diagnosis column. And it was a 
sweet lady who just was, she broke out in hives all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. And the answer ultimately was that she had alpha gal and she was just eating meat with every meal. So she never could stop breaking out in hives, you know? And so that was a trick. That was a tricky one because we have lots of patients who break out in hives every single day and it's not alpha gal. But for her, it turned out that alpha gal was the answer. And then, you know, I'm fairly certain that she gave him a big hug and a kiss whenever they finally got that diagnosis right, because she finally stopped being itchy for the first time in a long time. Do most of the positive patients remember being bit by a tick? Yes. Okay. 60 to 70% remember being bitten by a tick um, in our cohort. And oftentimes the tick bite itself, you know, that they get a large local swelling and hives um, at the site of the bite. So they're getting a reaction that's kind of like an allergic reaction, you know, at the site of the bite itself. Those patients, the, 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 the tick bites tend to be memorable and the patients tend to know that they've been bitten. You know, and then the ones who say, I can't remember a specific tick bite will still say to you, you know, the, the third, the other 30 percent, I've been I've been bitten by ticks and I do get bitten by ticks. I just don't remember one as being particularly memorable recently before I started having these symptoms. So you just presume, you know, that they probably did get bitten. Um, but again, that, you know, is there another pathway to becoming allergic to alpha gal that doesn't involve ticks? I don't think so, but I don't know that for a certain there are definitely a couple of other meat allergies that people can have that look like alpha-gal. I've got, you know, out of my hundreds of patients with alpha-gal, I've got three or four that are allergic to meat by a different pathway where they just became allergic to all mammals because of, uh, they started out as being allergic to cat and then they became allergic to pork and milk and beef. That doesn't bode well for me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's kind of a bit of a wrap-up question. As, as I said before, we're all educators on this team. We all do extension. And there's a lot of things it seems like where entomology interfaces with the medical community mm -hmm. and there's not always a partnership there, I guess. Right. Uh, what is something that we could be doing as bug people to help you in the medical field and then vice versa? What do you think the medical community could do to help us out, I guess, uh, in the future going forward with this problem? Probably the most useful information clinically is you know, where are the bugs and what are they carrying at the moment? You know, like if you're talking about hunting the bugs, uh, the other thing is that if you happen to just be a, the kind of person who's collecting large numbers of ticks, I've got a friend, you know, uh, Dr. S Dr. Smith, who's trying to get as many ticks as he can get to grind them up and, and study, you know, like tick allergies and alpha-gal allergy in relation to ticks. If you're a professional, I don't, I don't want everybody just like mailing him ticks, please don't do that. But we could figure out a way for professional tick collectors and entomologists to, to get him ticks that would help his research that he's doing in, in conjunction with the Department of Defense. You can imagine that the Department of Defense doesn't want, you know, their soldiers at Fort Campbell to all become allergic to alpha-gal, um, you know, when they're crawling through the weeds, you know, doing their, their training and their drills. As far as that goes, that's, those are some thoughts that I have. I really think that it would be lovely, 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 if at the level of, you know, say the CDC, you know, like that we just keep growing our ability to, to do alpha-gal research and collaborations that extend from, you know, the clinical space into the public health space, because, you know, alpha-gal is just a proxy for tick exposure, right? You know, the tick is there, you're getting exposed to it, you get alpha-gal, you know, but the same thing, the same people that are going to get alpha-gal because of a tick bite are also going to get tick-borne diseases like Ehrlichia, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And if they're out in the woods, they might get bitten by other ticks that are going to give them Lyme disease. I think figuring out ways that we can 
reduce the tick population, you know, while still not having to cull every deer in the woods are things that would be really valuable for both the entomologists and for the, and for the clinical people, you know, because a lot of what I do is I just, I try to, you know, encourage patients to avoid ticks, but I also remind them of the things that we know that reduce tick bites, like, you know, the permethrin based camping sprays that the Department of Defense developed, you know, for soldiers, you know, that if you spray those on your outdoor clothes, you know, those are good for five washings that if the ticks get on you, that it'll kill them, you know, and then the other things is like, hey, you know, like in your, in your garden, you know, like there's some things that we probably could be studying, you know, like to grow that would keep the deer away because maybe they don't like to eat garlic and onions. And if we all planted garlic and onions around our yards, maybe there would be less ticks in our yards, you know, because the deer would go somewhere else to forage. I don't know. So there's, there's lots of things that I can think of, you know, which would mostly think, you know, thought my thoughts are like, what can we be doing to alter the the current interactions between humans, ticks, and their primary vector, which is deer and and other large mammals, you know, because I know that, you know, where Jody is in Nebraska, the main vector for ticks is probably people hanging out with their cattle. In Tennessee, it's people who are walking through the woods willy-nilly and getting ambushed by ticks that came off of deer. Sounds like what we need is a lobby group that can start putting more pressure on the Tick Act that's been passed in Congress to include more, perhaps focused on uh, alpha-gal and the red meat syndrome. I mean, you know, I'm biased because that might give me a little bit of job security, finally. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, it sure would help if we had more funding for medication allergy research and for alpha-gal allergy research. I can't openly advocate for that because I really would like for it to happen. But, you know, if you're a patient and you're affected, you know, then, you know, the the tax dollars for research are your tax dollars and you can ask for them to be spent you know, to help, you know, you and other citizens who are like you. So I, I certainly would say that, you know, talking to your congressional representatives, if you're affected by by, by an under-research problem is one of the things that we have in, in a democracy that allows us to direct research dollars in one direction or another. There you go, folks. Write your congressperson, write your senator, put pressure on them to, to recognize that this is a burgeoning issue here in the U.S., uh, and elsewhere, and we need to to put some money into it. Yeah, well, and, and sometimes the other thing that can happen is that, uh, you know, there's not, to my knowledge, a foundation, you know, that a lot of times patients can organize foundations that can help to raise awareness and also fund research. There's not an alpha-gal allergy foundation that I know of. There's not a tick-borne diseases foundation that I know of, unless you guys know differently than I do. So maybe the answer is that patients need to organize and they need to, you know, create their own group that, that, you know, both lobbies for and funds research that is relevant to the problems that they're experiencing. That works well within our American system of, you know, let, you know banding together and, and creating the change that we want to see. Sometimes we have to be the change if we're the ones that are affected. Thank you so much. I learned so much. Oh, I had fun. I can't believe you guys just let me b- uh, blather on for all this time. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't blathering. It's it's quality content. It is, okay, is good, quality good content, audio. Quality content. Uh, we appreciate Dr. Stone for coming on and being a part of the show and giving us that perspective from outside of the entomological community. If people wanted to learn more about you and your program down at Vanderbilt, are there any spaces that they could find online to read more? You know, if you're the kind of person who likes to read research, most of my alpha research is what did have funding attached to it. And so it's publicly available on, you know, PubMed. Um, you know, if you search for my name, you know, there's, there's, there's only one Cosby stone on PubMed at the moment. You know, I don't know if my son's going to do research, but maybe he will one day. And then, uh, 
you know, Google Scholar, if you search for my name, you can find every paper I've ever written, including abstracts. I've, I made sure that to keep, to keep that up to date. Thank you. Thank thanks you. For joining. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, if people want to find us online, we are at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. We're on all of your favorite podcatcher apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. We're there, arthro-pod. You have to include the dash or you won't find us. You can also find us on Twitter. We are arthro underscore pod show on that platform or X or whatever they're calling it now. I know it's changing. Uh, and we are all individually on Formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, thank you. That is that is the perfect way to put it. The platform <laughs> formerly known as Twitter. Uh, we are all on there. Uh, I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugsme, UNL. And I'm at mscavarla 36 And we hope you will join us for our next episode, which will feature a little more granular look at the actual molecule that's called AlphaGal and where it is and what it's doing inside of ticks and others. So look forward to that, and we'll catch you in a couple of weeks here on Arthropod. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time, same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Luckily, red meat is a very rarely consumed food item in the United States of America. Especially in the Southeast. Yeah. I, especially, very, especially by people who are crawling around in the woods getting bitten yeah, by Exactly. They don't they hate barbecues. They, you know, they're yeah, very they famous for impossible burgers. Yeah, they never go hunting for the thing that makes them have an allergic reaction. Right, right. Yeah.